Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Center for Women and Gender, providing a professional and social climate to enhance opportunities through learning, discovery, and engagement. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. And the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A coalition of faculty and students at USU have come together to organize a day-long discussion of sexual violence. In order to understand the issues that informed the Kavanaugh hearings and investigation, this teach-in is happening today, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the USU Anthropology Museum. That's Old Main 252 on the USU campus. Uh, today on the program, as a part of our UPR original series, Utah Women 2020, we are including several of the teach-in participants and uh, members of this uh, coalition um, in studio to discuss the issues and talk about the Me Too movement, which is now one year in. We hope you'll join the discussion as well. Here are the ways you can reach us. UPRaccess at gmail.com is the email. UPRaccess at gmail.com. Our phone number, toll free, 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. And you can join us by Twitter at UPRaccess. And so we welcome in uh, studio and appreciate them uh, coming in. Uh, Kena Itchokyuk, uh, who is a Ph.D. student in technical communication and rhetoric. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Maricela Martinez-Cola is an assistant professor of uh, sociology. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, we have with us Felipe Valencia, who is assistant professor of Spanish. Thanks. Thank you. Good morning. And Felicia Gallegos, who is outreach uh, prevention coordinator with uh, SAVI, which is uh, the Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Office on okay. the USU campus. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, good morning. So first question, and then we have an essay from our listener who will get us into some of the issues here. We've all been glued to the news. Um, uh, I wonder, um, this, this, is a, this is a grassroots effort, and I understand, uh, Felipe, you were maybe started this whole thing off with, with, with an email. Tell us how this uh, Faculty Student Alliance got started. Well, yeah, um, I think uh, the next day after the, the hearings with Dr. Blasey Ford and and just and now Justice Kavanaugh, um, I, I think several of us wanted to seek input from other faculty and, and students and community members um, about what was going on, um, sort of seek ways and share ways of understanding this from various perspectives, various experiences, various disciplines. Um, so... Um, we we came up with this idea of the teaching and the teach in and the and the faculty student alliance formed. Uh, Jess Lucero, um, who teaches social work, uh, was fundamental in kind of pulling everything together and coordinating. Um, and it's it's been very interesting to see how everything has evolved in a very organic way uh, with participation from a lot of different quarters. Um, in many ways, much better than I think any individual could have imagined or anticipated because mm -hmm. it's really been become a community effort um, to come together and to seek to understand and interpret and contextualize all of this um, from many different perspectives. Which, which I think is a is a is a need. I felt the need to contextualize this. It's a, mm -hmm. so you have raw emotion, right? You you have um, you have so much going on. 
uh, still going on. It reached a fever pitch during during the you know, those riveting hearings and mm-hmm. investigation. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, now a certain part of it is over. Now Brett Kavanaugh is a justice of the Supreme Court, but of course the issues go forward. And I understand that the teach-in will uh, explore political, social, cultural context of sexual assault and develop activist strategies to bring about change. So change is something we'll talk about. Also talking about the history and impact of sexual violence in our society. Um, So I think this might be a good uh, place to bring in an essay, which was sent to us on Friday. Uh, by a listener who who provides essays to us from time to time. Her name is Emily Bergen. Um, and uh, so let me just, just read this. It's a, l- a little bit lengthy. Uh, and so she was submitting this on Friday ahead of the vote. Um, and, and so I want to get that in um, because she was hoping to perhaps influence the vote. But many of the issues here are still germane. So we've asked for her permission to to, to have me read this. So. Uh, This is Emily Bergen. As I listened to Christine Blasey Ford's testimony during this week's Supreme Court nomination hearings, I had already begun to think about how violent sexual assault is, how awful it is to take control of a person and another person's body. Then I was struck by the fear she felt for her life during this attack. It was hard for me to breathe, she said. I thought that Brett was accidentally going to kill me. Hearing this, my heart stuttered and I gasped. She was afraid for her life, I thought. I was also struck by how little her attacker valued her life and the consequences his actions would unleash in her life. Perhaps because the words life and control of her body were clanging around in my mind, the issues of abortion and sexual assault collided in my mind. Now, the abortion debate is often boiled down to the conflict between the value of every life, even the unborn, and the right for a woman to control her own body. Which is more important? People feel passionately about both sides of this debate. We have been fighting about this for decades. In fact, this confirmation hearing is driven by the fuel of the abortion debate. Many of us realize this particular nomination holds promise to create a conservative majority in the Supreme Court, giving rise to speculation that Roe v. Wade would someday be overturned, that abortion would lose its constitutional protection. I know Republicans see a fleeting opportunity to secure a majority on the Supreme Court, but I urge them not to get caught up in this moment. Republicans, please do not railroad this man through to confirmation. If you do, I predict it will be the nail in your midterm coffins because a fiercer villain has reared his head. Sexual assault cares not for life nor for control of one's own body. It takes what it wants. It casts aside lives solely for its own gratification and or dominance. Sexual assault must be stopped at all costs. And I beg that sexual assault not be given any place in our highest court. Even the merest whiff of sexual assault in the confirmation process should be enough for any political party to pull the plug on any nominee. This is bigger than party politics. This is bigger than Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford. For too long, sexual assault has been a cancer that has ravaged our country. We are only beginning to see the extent to which it has infected our collective body. According to Rain.org, that's the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, every 98 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. That comes to an average of 321,500 victims per year, a statistics from the Department of Justice survey. In only three years, we rack up nearly a million victims. Over a lifetime, that adds up to tens of millions of voters who are hurt and confused by these proceedings. We are asking ourselves, why is this man still being considered as a Supreme Court nominee? The effects of sexual assault are many and are all debilitating. Depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, suicide, eating disorders, substance abuse, dissociation, and trouble in relationships with family and friends, to name a few. Those facts also come from Rain.org. As we have seen from a year of the Me Too movement, sexual assault 
uh, crosses party lines. It touches people of every race, every culture, every gender. It affects people of all ages and sizes, from all walks of life, be they rich or poor or somewhere in between. If Judge Kavanaugh is confirmed to the Supreme Court in light of these allegations, it would feel like a slap in the face to many Americans, a great big F you from our government to so many of us who are only beginning to understand and talk about our experiences with sexual assault. Right now, I'm a registered Republican. I'm also a survivor of sexual abuse, though up to this point I never tagged my accounts with the hashtag MeToo, though I'm not sure why. When I was a child, my father sometimes crept downstairs and molested me as I slept. I'm not sure how often it happened. I woke up several times with his hands in my underpants, but as a child I didn't understand what was going on. Of course, this is only a fraction of my story. I can't tell you how devastating it was as a young adult to realize that the man who should have been protecting me was the one taking advantage of me and injuring me. Right now, America is devastated. Many of us are waking up to the fact that we have been abused by those who should have protected us. Fathers, mothers, teachers, judges, supervisors, church clergy, doctors, coaches, bosses. If Judge Kavanaugh is confirmed as a Supreme Court justice, who will feel like a betrayal by our own government to many the many millions of Americans who have been victims of sexual assault. Please, Senators, protect us. Please don't injure us further by confirming this man to the Supreme Court. Please consider these millions of Americans who are victims of sexual assault, for whom this has been a very tough and triggering week. For uh, two days following the testimonies last Thursday, I felt numb. But then on Sunday, I cried and cried all day long. There is still time left to do the right thing. The issue of sexual assault trumps the issue of abortion. Please, I beg you, protect the lives of people we have now. Find another nominee, someone so good and so full of integrity that Republicans and Democrats alike will have only political uh, qualms uh, in political qualms in confirming him or her to the Supreme Court. There are other worthy judges and individuals out there. Find them. I have faith in our country to do the right thing, and this is the right thing to do. So that's the essay from uh, Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the issues, you know, I, I, I saw you in studio nodding your heads with um, just the the raw numb. I felt numb through those <laughs> those, those mm-hmm. hearings, um, and this is sort of just descending into this maelstrom of political divide that we have. It's uh, it, it's it's kind of shaking out, and that's the danger, a danger I think, shaking out along political uh, divide. Um, just general comments of, uh, I guess, what your, your feelings, the top of mind during those hearings, investigation, or anything you'd like to comment on Emily's essay. Well, first, I want to thank Emily so much for being willing to share that and, um, you know, speak out. That's that's the whole point of today's event and the whole point of coming together, and it takes all of us. And so, I really appreciate her sharing her story and being willing to add to the movement and um she's thank you um next i just want to point on that i love what she had to say about just that sexual assault has kind of become a cancer in our country right it was hidden a hidden cancer and now it's it's just it seems like it's everywhere we look um but unfortunately although the response is slowly changing it's still not a start by believing response and that's what we're seeing with these with the Kavanaugh hearing and it's so important that we start changing the narrative and really start by believing when people come forward and it takes all of us Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what I wanted yeah thank you by the way that's Felicia Gallegos thank you Um, any other responses and maybe I'd any response you want to give, and then I'll just um, just frame it this way. 
Um, I, I think that at least there had been some progress, right? The the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee recognized that they per, it would not perhaps go over so well if they were seen blatantly attacking Dr. Ford. Um, but what you saw was, yes, I believe something happened to Dr. Ford, but it wasn't him, right? So, so is is that believing the survivor? Right. I don't know. What do, what do you um, think? Well, I think uh, this is uh, Maricela Martinez Cola. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I try to teach my students um, is that in order to be able to understand a contemporary issue, you really need to be able to understand the history of it, and the idea of being believed has always been an issue at the core of this particular crime. Um, when you look at it historically, um, anywhere from uh, it's the idea of needing of bleeding in order to be believed. You know, this idea that you have to sort of uh, sacrifice yourself in front of these, you know, strangers eyes. And in Dr. Ford's case, millions of strangers eyes in order to be believed. And so that's always been at the core of it. Um, There's a case in 1902 in Wisconsin where a 16 year old reported that her neighbor um, had raped her. Uh, the defendant, he was convicted initially, but the decision was overturned um, because she did not ex- exercise t- what's called terrific resistance. And so these questions of did you resist, uh, did you fight back, what did you do, start to go back. The idea of putting it back on the victim is not a new thing, mm-hmm. right? Is what I is what I'm explaining. And then uh, another question that came forward. Um, and I think this didn't achieve majority support, but there's still some apparently who are saying, including the president, uh, why didn't she come forward as a 15-year-old, right? Um, absolutely. Like even Emily discussed um, in her essay, she didn't say anything and she doesn't know why. And on Twitter and in social media, there has been um, a hashtag why I didn't report. And that trended for a little while. And, you know, I actually wrote, um, a, a little piece about that too and you know it's like well I did report the first time but nothing happened and so the second time like why would I put myself through medical exams why would I put myself through all these different like pointed questions on what did you do to provoke this and and, not- and, and so like for me you know as I read um, as I read all these different people's accountings of why they didn't report and and then hearing the president saying, you know, oh, well, they didn't, she didn't report, you know, and, and how can she still remember? You know, I, I remember my first attack, you know, it's been 34 years, but it's still, I could still remember it, even mm-hmm. though I was young. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to say that that doesn't happen and that we, that we always report or that the onus of reporting is like, um, it's easy, you know, uh, is... It comes from a position of privilege. Mm-hmm. And I just want to add, today actually during the event, I'm discussing these barriers to seeking help and why it takes years for individuals to come forward or um, why they never come forward at all. But one thing I do want to point out is that it's just not a black and white issue. Um, sexual assault isn't always what we see in the movies and it isn't always somebody jumping out. It actually usually isn't somebody jumping out of the bushes in a dark alley, right? It's very gray crime. And if someone's not completely sure what happened, it's as in, as in they know they were assaulted, but it's not what it looks like in the movies. So am I going to be believed? 
they're not going to come forward because they don't want to face the scrutiny of not being believed and mm. being told that they're lying. Yeah. According, yes. Um, according to the statistics from Rain, I'm glad that you uh, referenced them before. Um, they said that 20% of the reason why um, people uh, choose not to report is 20% uh, fear retaliation, 13% believe the police would not do anything to help, 13% believed it was a personal matter, 8% reported it to a different official, 8% believed it was not important to report, 7 did not want to get the perpetrator in trouble, um, and 30% gave another reason or did not cite one reason at all. Mm -hmm. So there's um, a, a variety of reasons why they why people do not um, speak up. And there is a tremendous process to it that I don't think people realize. Mm -hmm. you, you first have to tell the police, and then the police has to decide whether or not they're going to go and investigate it to find the evidence and then take that to the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And the prosecutor has discretion to determine whether or not this is a case that's quote-unquote winnable. Yeah. Um, and so it's... There, you know, to, in order to report, you're going to put yourself through a lot um, of hurdles that the individual that reports um, has to go through. In the meantime, the defendant just has to wait to see whether or not it pans out. Yeah. I want to, um, I want to bring uh, Felipe Valencia into the, in, into the discussion. Um, these hearings must have affected you, I'm, I'm guessing. You got an email and you... You initiated a discussion which which ended up um, resulting um, uh, through organization of Justice Arrow and others uh, savvy with this new organization, the Faculty Student Alliance. Uh, well, yes, it it is it is a very uh, is is an issue that that of course touches many of us, uh, even if we haven't experienced it, um, because it inflicts tremendous suffering and creates a tremendous inequality and injustice in in our society. Um I study it um I study it's the the role of rape and sexual violence in our in culture. Um and I think Emily's essay points that out. Um I, I think unfortunately there is a relation between uh, masculine power, uh, the power wielded by men, and it's usually political, but sometimes also artistic, creative, and the sexual violence that they perform against women as a way of obtaining that power or legitimizing its use. Um, I think we can all think of of Greek and Roman myths in which the divinity of the gods is asserted by their use of rape, that recurs in many religions. Um, and more generally, between men's use of power and their display of anger and violence, even if it's only verbal, um, the way that Justice Kavanaugh was visibly angry, um, purportedly because he felt wrongly accused, um, is very cultural in the sense that um, we would uh, the anger of a woman in that situation would be perceived very differently, mm -hmm. um, and it was it was a very interesting it was very interesting to see how 27 years ago Dr. Uh, Professor Hill and now Professor Ford um, have to behave mm -hmm. in order to to be believed, and of course that turns in my head as a literary scholar all sorts of issues about what is a reliable narrative and why do we believe some narratives more than others?
I want to uh, pose a question uh, that we'll go to uh, a break here pretty soon. Um, what is it going to take for for the culture to tr- to truly change? We've we've seen a, a tremendous feels like a, a shift in the year since the Me Too movement has has been going on. Then you then you get to the, the Kavanaugh hearings and investigation, and you see maybe some limits to where we have, you know, to where we haven't changed. Um, and uh, let me let me start with you, Felicia. Um, what do you think the changes have been, and where would you like to see it go? Yeah, I think that, I mean, the Me Too movement has brought so many people out of the darkness and given them a platform to share their experience. And I think that that has caused a shift because it's starting a conversation. And I think that in order to have a cultural change overall, we have to realize within ourselves that we have the power to change this culture, that we as an individual can start these conversations and we can speak up when we hear somebody speaking degradingly about a woman or um, speaking, accepting violence, right? When we hear these conversations, we can step in and slowly, I mean, change takes time. But as we've seen just in the last couple of years, there has been change. And it's because these conversations are being had and women and men are speaking out not only about being survivors, but about knowing survivors and standing up for them and just having a zero tolerance policy for violence, right? And so eventually that will grow. And that's how we change culture here at Utah State. That's how we've changed our culture. And that's how we can do it throughout the whole country and the entire world. Mm. Anybody else? Um, Kena, do you want to uh, step in? What cult, overall culture? How how does that? How far has it changed? Do you think? How far left to go? Where would you like to see it go? Well, um, you know, last year um, my my teenage daughter was sexually assaulted in her high school in Idaho, and the young man who assaulted her admitted it and wrote a statement out, and the police chose not to um, believe her because she did not perform victim correctly. She performed like a strong young woman who reported a sexual assault on campus and still wasn't listened to. And um, instead of being defeated, she allowed us to get her father and I to get other people involved because our, our collective voices weren't strong enough to be heard. So we got other people involved. And now that school district is actually making a lot of policy changes in um, regards to sexual assault um, on campus and and believing victims. And, you know, there's the hashtag that Savvy is using this month or just just using is start by believing. And I think that is part of the cultural shift that needs to happen is start by believing. Um, You know, if it it becomes a he said, she said, like that's we're starting to like look for reasons not to believe when we do that. But let's let's believe people that come forward because the amount of courage it takes is worth recognizing. Interesting. It's interesting yes. to me that um, people will believe a Yelp review more than they'll believe a person um, who has, you know, they'll sit there and look up reviews of a restaurant, for example, and if there's just too many awful ones, so they just won't go there, you know, is the idea. Um, and so it's it's really remarkable what people choose to believe and what they 
choose not to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if your, your threshold is stars on a Yelp, then there's a really big cultural shift that needs to happen yeah. um, when you talk about what it means to believe something. Yeah. Uh, and I also would add that it's, I, I think it's important to make distinctions of, of where, in what context, the uh, allegation, the accusations, uh, the testimonials t- take place. In the case of Justice Kavanaugh, for instance, it wasn't a criminal trial, which means that the burden of proof is completely different than in a criminal trial. Um, it was basically a job interview for a tremendous privilege um, that shouldn't be given away lightly to anybody. Um, so, uh, I mean, and, and also to consider that most of the famous men that in the last year have have suffered setbacks in their careers because of very, very substantial, very credible allegations um, as part of the Me Too movement have not suffered loss of liberty or life or property that is substantial. I mean, uh, Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. And, uh, and Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer are still extremely wealthy and as far as we know, they're safe and sound. And Weinstein, I think, is facing criminal charges, but the rest are, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. but I mean, but even if he's facing criminal charges, mm-hmm. that doesn't even compare to the damage mm-hmm. that he very likely inflicted on many women yeah. uh, damage of all sorts, physical, emotional, economic. You know? um, so I think it's important to, to make those distinctions. Um, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I, I have a bunch of questions. You may as well. Questions or comments, and here's how to reach the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number. 800-826-1495. We're responding to the Kavanaugh hearings and investigation and uh, ahead of a teach-in, which will be happening uh, 10 to 3 today on the USU campus. That's at the Anthropology Museum, which is uh, 252 um, Old Main on the USU campus. A coalition of faculty and students has just formed. It's the Faculty Student Alliance, and they, along with Savvy, Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Office, are sponsoring this uh, teach-in on the USU campus. We're talking about the issues raised uh, and by the uh, the Kavanaugh hearings investigation, also the Me Too movement, which is now a year old, and uh, looking to the future as well. So after the break, I want to talk about this performing performing victim. I, I saw some a couple of uh, cartoons political cartoons, which imagined what would have happened if Dr. Blasey Ford had come in and dialed it up to 15 like uh, Justice Kavanaugh did. Um, and and we've, we've, we've talked about this uh, a little bit. Uh, I want to further explore this. Um, also, the non-legal consequences, and Felipe, you, you referred to, to, to this. Um, what should the consequences be, and is there... Um, President uh, Trump uh, at, at a rally recently is uh, is saying that young men across America are now at uh, risk of false reporting, and uh, is is that how how big of a worry should that be in in this, and where should we contextualize that? Um, many questions. Your questions after the break as well. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, upraxis at gmail dot com, and on Twitter at upraxis. More following the break. You might know Don't Stop Believin' or Any Way You Want It, That's the Way You Need It, but Steve Peary, the guy who sang those songs, left Journey in the late 80s, and outside of a couple of singles, has been pretty silent since. 
Steve Perry will tell you about the very personal reason he's back. It's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Kristen Munson, Features Reporter for Utah Public Radio. UPR is a community-based organization, and we want to hear from you. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at this station, we'd love to hear from you. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag, I am UPR. Thanks for listening. Utah Public Radio is broadcasting a series of debates organized by the Utah Debate Commission. Next up is the Senate debate, which will be originating from Southern Utah University. The Democrat, Jenny Wilson, will face off against the Republican, Mitt Romney. We hope you'll join us this evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A coalition of faculty and students at USU have come together to organize a day-long discussion of sexual violence in order to understand the issues that informed the Kavanaugh hearings and investigation. That teach-in is happening today, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the USU Anthropology Museum, Old Main 252 on the USU campus. We're talking about these issues, including uh, the year anniversary of uh, Me Too and uh, the, the issues arising from the Kavanaugh hearings and investigation and uh, sexual violence uh, in America, where we are uh, culturally, politically, and, um, and historically. Um, so the, the number, once again, 800-826-1495. We'd love to hear your story, your reaction uh, to the Kavanaugh hearings, your reaction to Me Too, now you're in. 800-826-1495. Or you can reach us to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at upraxcess. We have another about 25 minutes left in this uh, discussion. We're talking with Akena Ichokyuk, uh, who is a Ph.D. student in technical communications and uh, rhetoric. Maricela Martinez-Cola, who is assistant professor of sociology. Felipe Valencia, who is Assistant Professor of Spanish, and Felicia Gallegos, who is Outreach and Prevention Coordinator with SAVI. Uh, that's the Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Office on the USU uh, campus. Um, so before the break, I, I, I teased a question that I have had. We've talked a little bit about this. Um, understand that women have to kind of tread lightly, even even a year after Me Too, right? Kenny, you talked about this, that your your daughter didn't, how do you phrase it, didn't perform the victim the way the society wanted her to. How do you think society would have wanted her to act? Well, the police officer that um, decided not to go forth with any kind of battery charges um, against this young man said that she acted as um, she didn't cry, she didn't act really nervous and jittery, she didn't break down. Um, instead, what she did was march herself over to the the school's office and report this. And and she acted strong, she acted calm, she um, answered questions, and she didn't perform like a like a, like mm-hmm. a like an emotional creature that is what they expect women to perform or other um victims of of sexual violence to perform um like like they're breaking down and if you're not breaking down then maybe it's not real or maybe it wasn't that big of a deal to you mm. and that's that's a real problem yeah w- why do you think she 
performed in, in your view is a, in a strong manner is is it a cultural shift in the society at large is it i guess maybe you and father teaching her what what uh, um i think it's a combination of her her personality and it's a combination of witnessing um people not being taken because if you here's the contradiction right if you perform uh as a victim right and and people see it then then they think something's also wrong with you mm-hmm. <laughs> like that that you're overreacting and so there's like there's it's a catch 22 what what are you supposed to do and you know she chose to she's a debater she's you know all these different things so she chose to um to contain her feelings a little bit more in the public um arena but at home she suffered greatly mm-hmm. And what she chose to show in the public arena um, was very different than what she felt safe mm-hmm. to show um, at home, right? Yeah. There's, a, there's a difference in, in that. So, Felicia, um, I'm sure you have a, a perspective on this. Uh, my specific question, then responding to anything you want to with, with Kena, what she just said, uh, are we seeing increased reporting? Do, do women feel safer to come forward, more likely to be believed, or, or not? So, as... As far as reporting, I think the, the the numbers are pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Seeking help, though, has increased, right? Savvy is a confidential resource, and our numbers have increased. Um, and that's not because incidences are happening more. It's because individuals feel that they can come forward, and they, they can talk about their experience. Are they ready to report those experiences? Not usually. Still, we still have a barrier to reporting because of this not being believed and I have to I have to fit a certain certain stereotype I have my situation has to fit a specific model and if it doesn't fit that I mean we hear all the time it wasn't well it wasn't that bad it wasn't bad enough to report and I mean these are atrocious crimes that I'm hearing and women and men are saying it wasn't that bad I don't I that people have had worse experiences than I have and because they don't want to go through the hassle or the emotional um deter like um the emotional journey of reporting um they don't want to go through that if they don't feel like their experience is bad enough hmm. which is so unfortunate that that's the way it is and that people just just like with your daughter are strong and they're they're we see it all the time in our office. Women come in very strong and determined to heal and get through this and then help other women, right? We see it all the time. But these women still don't feel safe to go and report their incident because they're not going to be believed. They don't fit the mold, and their experience doesn't fit the mold to go forward and mm-hmm. be believed. I just was uh, reading something t- today or yesterday um that uh, Republicans, President Trump, um, Senate Republicans especially, are now trying to, to to take some political benefit from from the uh, you know the, from the Kavanaugh hearings and, and investigation, and therein at least I see some danger if if Democrats become the, become the party of Me Too, and Republicans become the party of Let's protect men from overreach and from you know um, fr- from a mob mentality. Which is the word I saw in the in the story? I don't know who which Republican official was was uh, trying to frame it that way. Uh, then that's a if this becomes politicized to that uh, extent, then 
I, I see some danger there that we don't we don't tackle this the way we should as a society. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I absolutely am. And and again, this idea that um, men are in danger is is again not a not a new thing. It's not a new sort of discovery or allegation. Um, in a 1968 Columbia Law Review article, so these are the the lovely IVs that everybody. Um, you know, uh, has such respect for, um, said that there needed to be a standard of what they called corroborating evidence because, quote, every man is in danger of being prosecuted and convicted on the testimony of a base woman in whose testimony there is no truth and because of the psychic complexes of errant young girls and women coming before the court, end quote. So it's this, again, putting it back onto the woman. So even if, if the man is theoretically in danger, it still goes back to, is this woman believable? You know, if, if if there's this perceived threat, and mm-hmm. I mean, this is back in the 1960s, um, that that idea was out there. And so, I guess we put that in that historical context. Uh, how far have we come then? Exactly, <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. I, I tend to bum my students out a lot mm-hmm. because yeah. um, I tell people that the more you know, sometimes it can be too, you know. Two steps, uh, one step forward, two steps back. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that in, in, until institutional change happens, right, um, the culture is not going to change. And yeah. they're, they're so intermittently mixed. If I'm going to drive down a road that's filled with potholes, until those potholes get filled, there's always going to be the danger of something happening when you go down that road. And that's what it's like. And I think people sort of need to understand that, that um, it's it's ultimately... Uh, the institutions that are that need to be transformed and change, and the people that are in charge of those. Mm-hmm. So. How do those institutions get transformed? Do you, do you think that's a big question? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about cultural institutions, political institutions, economic institutions. Uh, how does that transformation uh, take place? Is is it is it continuous pressure from the grassroots? Is it is it Me Too continuing? Because essentially, Me Too is a you know, grassroots um, movement, um, putting public pressure on institutions. Uh, to, to what end then? What to, what's the what's the goal? When when would you say, okay, we've arrived? Well, um, I would say that it's when um, men start taking up the call. Um, a lot of the changes that have happened has been a result of um, feminism. Has been a result of the women's um, movements throughout history. So uh, rape shield laws, for example, was not recommended um, by um, male lawmakers. It was introduced by uh, female um, uh, women, uh, attorneys and individuals who were fighting for the fact that they need to protect the victim. Um, And so that's when you began to see sort of the rape shield uh, laws happen. But um, women weren't the one that created the problem. So it shouldn't really be the ones that end up with a solution. It's a solution that has been created um, by the power structures and centers that have been ultimately dominated by men. Mm-hmm. And so until men take up the cause, I, you know, more men, I should say, take up the cause and fight alongside, um, I, I think that uh, there's not tremendous change, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, Kana first and then uh, Felicia. One thing that I, you know, I think it's kind of important to notice is that, right, the what should I say, the shortcomings of the law, perhaps, is reflected in policies that corporations, companies, institutions need to create to to protect their own employees. So, I mean, that says a lot about our culture when the law 
doesn't isn't a deterrent or maybe even human positive human behavior isn't a deterrent enough where companies need to um, put conditions on employment for behaving in in ways that that you know um, that don't promote sexual harassment sexual violence and so that the fact that uh, there are tons of policies. USU has a really strong one as well. You know, and that what those policies do is make up for a difference in what the, what the law actually does. At least that's how I read it. Mm-hmm. And and so I I think when you see that we have to have these kind of policies all over the place, and and I'm grateful for them, right? Absolutely grateful for them. But it shows that there's a shortcoming in the greater institution um, of of our country. Mm. Yeah. I I just wanted to say I think that cultural change going back to your initial question kind of that cultural change is going to happen when we stop making this a polarized issue that you can either speak up for survivors and encourage survivors to speak out or you can say men are getting falsely accused right it's not that's not the issue it isn't this or that it's about valuing an individual and that should be the movement. That is the purpose of Me Too. That is the purpose of stopping sexual violence. It's about, it's about what's right. It's about not just not violating women or men. Like that's a whole other issue we haven't even gotten into. But mm-hmm. men are even more silenced than women mm-hmm. about their experiences of sexual violence. But it's about letting those people have an arena where they can give, they can speak up and they can tell their story, and then. Obviously, that justice is served the way it should be. Um, somebody sh- never was the Me Too movement about coming out and falsely accusing these incidences that happened. That's not the movement. It's not about that. It's about survivors being able to share their experience and not be judged and ridiculed for it. It's about saying, this is what has happened. Let's face it and let's heal. Mm-hmm. Let's start to heal. It's not this or that. It's let's all together heal from this before we move forward some very interesting points there um the uh, there there seem to be concerns uh, however in you know certain circles that uh, there there's at least a danger of false reporting i don't know what there uh, if we have statistics on this uh, how how prevalent is it does it does it happen it statistically happens as much as any other crime is falsely reported it's about two to four percent you would find on rain but it's not when you think about what somebody goes through when they report a sexual assault or any interpersonal violence it is not it is an up the most steep uphill battle it is being asked victim blaming questions being asked what did you do to make this happen to you because you had to have done something to make this happen to you. You don't ask that for any other crime. But when you come out about a sexual violence, that is what you're asked. You're asked these questions. What were you wearing? How much did you drink? Why did you go there alone? Why did you go with them? You knew they were a stranger. These types of questions that make you doubt your whole entire experience. And when someone is, and you're not just asked this question once. I mean, we saw with Dr. Ford, she was asked these questions over and over about every little part of her story and that's the way it is for any survivor that comes forward and so it's not people going through with a false report is not is rare and 
Mm-hmm. I want to make it clear, too, because I've been reading a few articles um, that has said that that number is actually bigger, that people think that it is, because um, they're, they're, they're conflating cases that aren't pursued with false claims. So the, the, the mm-hmm. percentage of cases that aren't pursued is, of course, way bigger. And it's the idea that, um, again, do the police believer, do the prosecutor believer, there's sort of a lot of other aspects to it. Um, and that's very different than, than straight up, we've, di- we've discovered this is a false report. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to make sure that um, people that are out there aren't thinking that it's actually a bigger number, mm-hmm. um, just because uh, there wasn't something, as they say, corroborating evidence. Yeah. Um, you know, so... I want to get into, um, and by the way, we're talking uh, ahead of a, uh, a, a teach-in. This is uh, organized by a new uh, faculty-student alliance, along with the Savvy Office, Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Office at Utah State University. Uh, it's a teach-in on sexual violence called Supreme Stakes, Understanding Sexual Violence. This is in the aftermath of the Kavanaugh hearings and investigation. And that is uh, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the USU campus. It uh, That will be happening at the Anthropology Museum, which is 252 Old Main, for people who want to go and participate. You can participate in this program as well at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at upraxcess. I want to ask our panel, and by the way, we're, we are talking uh, with Kena Ichokyuk, who is a Ph.D. student in technical communication and rhetoric, Maricela Martinez-Cola, who is Assistant Professor of Sociology at USU, Felipe Valencia, Assistant Professor of Spanish at USU, and Felicia Gallegos, who is Outreach and Prevention Coordinator with the uh, Savvy Office. Um, I was talking to a friend during, the, during this whole thing, this extraordinary week that we've had uh, last week, um, and she was saying, you know what we really need... The, who we really need to reach is young men. We need to educate young men. And I've been thinking, uh, whatever education we do for young men, you know, young women as well. Whatever education for young women, young men, you know, because it takes, as we, mm-hmm. as you've been saying, um, it's going. To, the Me Too movement has primarily been women coming forward, and and that we need mm-hmm. men to come forward in greater numbers uh, as well. What would your message be? to young men, young women, um, well, as part of that education process? Yeah, I I would speak up. Uh, I would say that, first of all, I just want to point out that men have come out in the Me Too movement, and they're not believed, publicized. I mean, you got Tory, Terry Crews who came out, right, mm-hmm. through the Me Too movement, and it's just not publicized like women are. And so when we are addressing men boys, young men, adults, we have to approach them differently. And it's because, I mean, similar goal, intention, right? But men live in a world that is different than a woman's. They are faced by masculinity, right? These pressures to be masculine. um, And it often leads to toxic masculinity. What we see in media is often examples of toxic masculinity. And um, just more violent behavior, um, uh, idolizing or not idolizing, but itemize, uh, itemize, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like idolizing women, mm-hmm. um, making them an item, sexualizing them. Um, this is the pressures that they're under. And if we don't start by having a conversation about that, just that, just this is the world you live in, you may not even recognize these pressures you fail to live within. 
but that they're there, that's where we have to start. And that's why the conversation has to be unique is because men are living in a different bubble and a different pressure under different pressures than women are. And it is important that we give them, in addition to educating them about their own behavior, giving them the tools to step up in this movement and say you can make a difference, right? I've spoken to men who feel like if they speak up, they're like this is a woman's movement. If I speak up, I'm going to be just ridiculed, right? But that's not that's not how it should be addressed. It should be an open space for men to come forward to and men to share in stopping violence. It takes men to stop violence. Mm. We just have about five minutes left, so let's go to Felipe and then around the around the table here. Um, I fully agree with Felicia. Um, we have to reimagine masculinity, especially break the bond between uh, masculinity and aggressive, violent behaviors towards women or towards men who are not deemed masculine or do not conform with the expectations of masculinity or anybody who doesn't conform with the social expectations around gender. Um, And the power structures evidently are weighed in favor of men. They're mostly occupied by men, be it political power, economic power, religious power. Uh, but even cultural power in the sense that, as we were discussing before, um, sort of the the criteria that is used to evaluate whether a woman is a reliable narrator, is reliably telling a story, are very different from the criteria that are used to assess the reliability of male narrators. Um, so if, if from a woman narrator in, in, this, in these hearings... Uh, attractiveness and pleasantness were expected. I don't think the same was expected of of the male narrator. Um, so that, I think that requires bringing in a lot more women into all of these power structures. So we can rewrite rules that actually re- are fair and kind of are more representative of the experiences of more people. Hmm. Um, I, I'm sort of departing uh, from uh, my academic hat, but I when I heard the phrase, aren't you worried for your sons? You know, it's a dangerous time for your sons. Well, I, I have a wonderful, beautiful 11-year-old son. And the thought that came to my mind is what scares me more are the messages he's receiving um, in this world about what is okay and what isn't okay. Um, what worries me more are the video games he's playing where women are objectified. And because um, and I'm doing, my, you know, uh, his father and I are doing the best that we can um, and so there's a part of me that's like, if you're worried about your son, what are you teaching them mm-hmm. at home? What are you modeling for them at home? But how can you protect them from what the me- sorry the messages that they're getting mm. um, from this world? That's what concerns me more. Excellent. Uh, we just have about a minute left. We'll give uh, uh, Katie the last word here. Well, I think um, I think one of the things that really needs to happen is to uh, destigmatize consensual sexual activity. That way, we can talk about sex. With our children, we can talk about consent and have those open and frank conversations, and they can talk to us about their concerns, their experiences, what they need to know. And then we also need to destigmatize the female body. 
so the conversation uh, obviously uh, has much more that it can be said, and uh, you can come to the teaching, and uh, much more will be said. That teaching is happening at 10 a.m. Uh, to 3 p.m. on the USU campus. Uh, it's organized by a new coalition, Faculty Student Alliance, and by the Savvy Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Office on USU campus. And uh, that teaching is happening at, uh, in the USU Anthropology Museum, 252 Old Main, uh, in, uh, on the campus in Logan. We've had with us uh, Felicia Gallegos, Outreach and Prevention uh, Coordinator for uh, Savvy. Thanks for coming in. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, we've had uh, with us uh, Kena Ichokyuk, uh, who is a Ph.D. student in Technical Communication and Rhetoric. Thanks. Pleasure. Uh, Maricela Martinez-Cola, Assistant Professor of Sociology. Thank you. Thank you so much. Never stop educating yourself. And Felipe Valencia, Assistant Professor of Spanish. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. When Quartet San Francisco was getting ready for a tour of China, they decided to play at least some music their audience would know. So they put the venerable classical string quartet in the service of music by Michael Jackson. Quartet San Francisco, on the next performance today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com and Utah State University Center for Women and Gender, providing a professional and social climate to enhance opportunities through learning, discovery, and engagement. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at UPR.org.